I'm, for those of you who care, a Calvinist, a five-point Calvinist. I'm reformed. I've memorized the Westminster Confession of Faith and can repeat it backwards. I teach at Reformed Theological Seminary, occasionally at Knox Seminary, and often at Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia. So I have the credentials, but can we talk? We who are Reformed are the scholars and the theologians of the church, and we have a gift to give to the church. But the problem is sometimes we throw it at them. We don't do whimsy well, and we don't laugh very much, and we've forgotten how to dance. But we're right, and that's dangerous. When we do exegesis on the Song of Solomon, we leave the sex out and only talk about Jesus and the church. When we teach Torah, the Pentateuch, we go up against the Graf Wellhausen documentary hypothesis. And every time the scripture doesn't fit our little system, rather than bowing before a God whose mind nobody knows, we explain it. Even when we don't understand it by talking until nobody cares anymore. I'm a Calvinist and I'm glad that I am. <laughs> But sometimes our family, and I include myself, miss the reality of the faith. When our daughters get pregnant and they don't have husbands, we don't know what to do. When our kids leave and our wife wants to find herself and ask for a divorce, when the husbands have a mistress, when our world is falling apart and we don't have a job, we proclaim doctrine. And doctrine, grace, is not a doctrine to be expounded. It's a hug to be experienced. And sometimes we, and I include myself in that, sometimes we forget. Do you, do you know what would be good for most Calvinists? to get drunk, speak in tongues, and confess their sins in a very public forum. Well, maybe not. But what I'm going to do this morning is less theology and exegesis, and I'm kind of uncomfortable with it because I'm a Calvinist. It's more whimsy than it is anything else. We're going to look at a parable that Jesus taught. You've heard it a thousand times, and I've preached on it a thousand times. And everything that can be said about this parable has been said. It's the parable in Luke 18, and I'm going to read it to you in a minute. Where a Pharisee and a tax collector go to church to pray. 
And the Pharisee, a good and righteous and godly man, probably reformed, says to God, I thank you that I'm not like him. And then, well, Jesus says it better than I do. And then we're going to ask the question, what happened to these guys after they prayed in the temple? Listen to these words. I'm going to start at the ninth verse of the 18th chapter of the gospel according to my friend Luke. Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get, but the tax collector standing far off would not even lift his eyes to heaven. But he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. I was there. I heard them pray and I got the gist of it. I didn't get all of it, but I was kind of pleased to listen to those two men pray, but sometimes worship services get boring and dull. And I needed some quiet time, so I went out back to smoke my pipe. That really is quiet time. Used to be a lot of us smoked. Most of us have died. <laughs> so I'm generally by myself out in front of the church, the only Christian left who still smokes. And, I, and I'm glad because I can be quiet and by myself. And it really was quiet until church got out. <laughs> then... Then the, the preacher, the elder, he came out first. He walked right by me. He had things to do for God, places to go, an impact to make for Christ. And then he smelled my pipe and he stopped. And he turned and said, what's that in your mouth? Says the pipe. He said, how can you do that? Well, I said, it's easy. Get a good briar and some mixed tobacco that you do yourself and you pack it kind of lightly. Then you get a match and you light it. He said, very funny. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, and you call yourself a Christian. And then he turned and walked off. Then the other guy came out, and he started toward me too. And I was just getting ready to say, okay, okay, 
I'm going to quit, all right? When he said, you know, that smells good. It, it reminds me of my grandfather. Thanks for the memories. And then he said to me, you must be a visitor. I haven't seen you around in a while. Then he introduced himself. And as he walked off, he said, hope you come back. And as I remember it, he was humming. Jesus paid it all. All to him I know. Sin had left its crimson stain. He watched it white as snow. I joined that church. But I'm a preacher, and I'm an old man. Mostly I listen, and mostly I watch. So I watched those two men. I'd kind of hang in the background and be still and listen. And I saw some things over those years when I was a part of the covenant people in Jerusalem that I thought I would share with you this morning. First thing about these two men is that one, the preacher slash elder, got better and better every day, every way. The sinner, not so much. <laughs> In fact, he wouldn't show up at church for a long time, and then he would show, and he would repent, and he would confess, and he would be hugged, and he would stay for a while. He used to say to me, and he would laugh, I want to be good. But I just can't be good enough long enough. But as I watched him, there was something about him that had the smell of Jesus. And I noticed that he was drinking less than he did before. And then he got regular. Then he got better with an occasional slip. Let me give you a principle, and the principle is this. People who get grace always come home. Let me say it again, because it's really important, and it's at the heart of what we do. People who get grace always come home. That's why I love this church. Tullian says some things that are harsh, but at the very heart, at the very base of it, is a God who is not angry. You know what my wife and I did last week? We had lunch with some friends of ours from Seattle. We've known them for a long time, and the story is not a very pretty one. She was married, and he wasn't having an affair, and she wasn't either. And I remember, and she was a young lady in those days, and she came into my study where the church where I was a pastor and didn't even knock, no respect for the clergy. She walked in and she said, Steve, sit down. I have something to tell you. I sat down. She said, I can't live with that sucker any longer. And I'm leaving. I started to say something. She said, don't say it. 
I know what you're supposed to say, and I know you'll say it. I know what I'm doing is wrong. I know that God is going to judge me, and I'm not doing this so I'll be happy. You've taught me better than that. I just can't stand him anymore. I started to say, she said, shut up. The only reason I'm here is I didn't want you to hear it from somebody else. And I'm out of here. My stuff's in my van and I'm gone. And she was gone and she got, that, that violated everything I knew. Now between you and me, I couldn't have lived with him. I mean, it was just, I mean, I just couldn't have stood him. So I got where she, I wasn't going to say it. I was a pastor. There are certain things one simply does not say. And she told me, she said, I know God's going to judge me, but I would rather be judged by God than live with that. And she used language that you wouldn't use around a pastor unless you know you're loved. I just can't live with him any longer. Paid a price. There was some pain and some hurt and some difficulty. But now she's married to a man she loves and they have two wonderful children. And we sat at lunch last week and she cried and talked about God's faithfulness and God's kindness and God's grace. People who get grace always come home Sometimes those who are doing it right, who are good and pure and obedient, who get the doctrine, who teach it, who stand before God's people, they hit a wall too, and they slip into the darkness. And I've seen it over and over again. Sometimes they don't come back. And so the preacher got better and better in every way, every day. The sinner didn't quickly, but he was there. He came back often, and we loved him, and we were his cheerleader. There was something about those two men. Let me tell you something else. When I stood before one of them, I always felt judged and guilty. When I stood before the other, I felt loved and free. Romans 7, the Apostle Paul shows an amazing understanding. And when he, when he talks about his own confession, the good I want to do, I can't do, and the evil I don't want to do, that's what I do. Do you know, do you know why thieves hang out with thieves? so they won't feel so guilty. Do you know why gossips hang out with gossipers? So they won't feel so guilty. You know why people who are into porn hang out with other people who are into porn? So they won't feel guilty about it. But there's another way. Maybe you could hang out with somebody like Paul or my friend, the sinner who was beginning to set those things aside, but he knew he could go back any second. And so he didn't throw rocks at other people. Something else 
about those uh, two guys. One, one gave his money and a lot of his time, and the other gave himself. I saw it all the time. I'd see a bunch of people, and there the sinner would be in the middle of them. He wasn't gay, but he had a lot of gay friends. He was big on being pro-life, but his best friend was a doctor who performed abortions. I didn't, I didn't get that. He gave himself in an amazing and full way to their lives. She was 16 and he was 17 when they met and fell in love. Two years later, they were married. And five years and two kids later, she was standing at the kitchen sink with a pile of dirty dishes and a pile of diapers in the corner. And she took her apron on and she said, I'm out of here. And she got in the car and drove off. When he got home, things were a mess. He couldn't find her. He didn't know what had happened to her. So he gave the kids cereal. He finally got them to bed. And then the phone rang and it was her. And he said to her, where the are you? She said, how are the children? He said, well, they, they're in bed. Their stomachs are full, if that's what you mean. And she hung up. Every two or three days, she would call. He put the kids with the grandparents during the day, and he picked them up on the way home, and he worried about her, and he missed her. And whenever she would call, he would say, will you come home? We love you, and we miss you. And she would hang up, and that happened over and over again until he took his savings. And he hired a private detective, bought an airplane ticket, when the detective found her and went to Ames, Iowa, where she was staying in a third-rate hotel. He got the number, he went up the stairs, ragged, no elevator. And if you had stood there and you had watched him at that time, you, you, you would have seen his hand tremble as he got ready to knock and the tears welling up in his eyes. He had a speech. He had memorized it over and over again and he knocked on, knocked on the door. And she came, and he forgot it all. And he said, I love you so much. Please come home with me. And she fell apart in his arms. Days later, when the kids were in bed, in that wonderful time, when they finally shut up. Some of you who don't have kids think, what a horrible things to say. Those of you who do are amazed at my restraint. And, uh, and he finally asked the question he, that had haunted him for so long. He said, I told you I loved you. All those weeks I reached out to you. I promised you the world and you wouldn't come home. Why? Why? And she said, because those were just words. Then you came. That's what Jesus did. 
you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, who even though he was rich for your sake became poor, that by his poverty you might become rich. And the sinner ran with Jesus, and he got that, so he showed. <laughs> he showed in funny places. You'd find him in a bar, and the preacher was shocked. You'd find his arm around a gay guy, and the preacher was shocked. You'd find him hanging out with the weirdos downtown, and the preacher was shocked. And then you came. Then there's something else about those two guys. Uh, one scared the spit out of pagans and unbelievers. And the other one attracted them. Jesus talks, or Paul talks about the fragrance of Christ. Let me tell you something that's, uh, that maybe you don't know. You smell like Jesus. And I smell like pipe smoke. And you can't get rid of either one. I can remember when I lied about smoking the pipe, but they knew. They could smell me 50 yards off. And as I walked with him, they could smell him too. I don't know why, maybe because of my own insecurity, but for years, I made a lot of gay jokes. I still slip on occasion. I'm on the board of Harvest USA in Philadelphia, and that started as a ministry to the gay and lesbian community, and now it's to the sexually broken. That's about every guy here, except one sitting in the back who just fell asleep. So it's a ministry that deals with people who are broken and hurt, and that's often true in the gay and lesbian community. But those of us who are straight sometimes make jokes. And I remember, I remember when I was a pastor in those days, and I made a joke the Sunday before, and, and a young couple who always had their friend with them came over. And as soon as I saw them walking toward me, I knew what they were going to say because the Holy Spirit convicted. And when they got to me, I said, don't even say it. I repent. I'm never going to do that again. They said, how did you know? I said, Jesus told me what you were going to say. And they said, you know, we bring our gay friends here. And they sometimes say this is the only place we can feel comfortable. You're clear about the truth, and they understand that, but they feel loved. But with that joke, you cut his legs off. So I have some good jokes I'm not going to tell you. I just don't do that anymore. I don't make fun of drunks anymore either or adulterers or pornographers, or thieves, or racists, or people who oppress others. And you know why? Because this is the place where we, do you, 
I'm a Baptarian. I mean, I love Baptists. There are just too many of them. They're like weeds. They grow everywhere. I mean, I love Baptists, but you can't get rid of them. They're just everywhere. I've heard about a Southern Baptist evangelist planning a church in the North. And somebody once asked him what his technique was. He said, well, it was hard. He said, but what I finally learned was you go to the supermarket and you watch for people who buy grits. <laughs> and, then, and then you invite them to come to your church. <laughs> oh man, we need to look for those who are screwed up, who are needy like us and afraid the way we're afraid and lonely the way we're lonely who have doubts the way we have doubts. You can see it on their faces. And my friend, the sinner in the church, could, he would zero in on it. You could see him with people. I wouldn't hang out loving people I don't love and inviting them to come to church. Well enough, I moved away from that church after a few years, but I came back to visit one time. And I saw him before he saw me, the Pharisee, the preacher, the elder. And I tried to run before he turned around, but he caught me. So I was civil and I said, how you doing? He said, I'm fine. Are you still smoking? I said, yeah, I've quit three or 400 times. I just guess I'm going to be buried with this pipe sticking out of my mouth. I said, uh, how about you? He told me about what he was learning and the books he was reading and the committees he was serving on for the denomination and the money he was giving and the causes he was supporting and the politics he was involved in. And then just out of the blue, I said, how's your family? And he got really silent. And I said to him, I appreciate all you've done, but you know, if you'd been a rebel, like the guy you started praying with, and you hadn't gotten better faster, and you had never served on the committees, and you had been a drunk, Jesus would still love you. I figured he'd be angry, but somebody needed to say it. And so I prepared myself for the blast that I was gonna receive, and you know what happened to my shock? The tears welled up in his eyes. And then he began to cry. I don't know what possessed me. I, he's not the huggable type, trust me. I just grabbed him and I held him while he wept. And I told him about Jesus. I said, why don't you go find the guy that you were praying with in church so long ago? Have a beer with him. Ask him to teach you how to dance. 
And he pushed me back and he said, maybe, maybe I will. Then he turned and walked off. I think, but I'm not sure that he was humming too. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. You think about that. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope this message was a reminder that God's not mad at you. For more free and freeing sermons and articles like this, be sure to check out the rest of the app or visit us at keylife.org.